<laughs> so we are here. We are live uh, with Dr. Tahari Jackson. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is your third or fourth time, right? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you would just take a moment there, just tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, who you is, who your people is, and all that kind of stuff. Who I'm in. Um, all right. Well, first of all, Captain Hunter, welcome back. I know you got a, a little bit of a hiatus there, and I'm so proud of you for taking time. This work is emotionally exhausting. And so I want to go back to my suggestion to have Captain Hunter's a fun cast. So please invite me back for that when there's not a shooting and we can talk about puppies and horses, babies and um, chocolate. Um, but my name is uh, Dr. Tahari Jackson. Uh, I am uh, actually an equal opportunity uh, manager at the Department of Defense now. I work in strategy and innovation, so I'm really excited to get to work there. I also um, still have my consultancy, Dr. Tahari Consulting. So uh, I work with the Department of Defense a little bit, but then I also do things like this and I get a chance to consult with lots of different organizations. Um, I think I mentioned last time that I was a professor for almost two decades, um, 17 years and um, most recently at the University of Maryland College Park where I specialize in things like you know race relations and multicultural education and teacher education and adult learning around anti-racism and specifically I study anti-racism and what I'm what what I what there's a scholar now calling pro-humanity so teaching everyone how to be more embracing and more loving of one another, right? Because we're all deserving of dignity and respect. So between my consulting and between my gig at the Department of Defense, um, I have a little precious time, but I love being here, spending it with you. Thanks for having me, Dr. Uh, Captain Hunter. Oh, soon to be Dr. Hunter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I'm more excited oh. about PhD <laughs> than you are. Oh, okay. Nobody knows about that. Well, they know now, I guess. <laughs> um, so thanks for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. So um, pro-humanity, this is a new term that's that's out there. I yeah. seem to have missed that. I seem to have missed that one. <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? I read it really briefly. It's actually coined by um, a black female scholar, and I really have to do my due diligence because I just sort of read it in passing. I think there's a book that goes along with it. But I've always worked in sort of anti-racism, anti-oppression, you know, um, in that space. But I know good and well that it's easier to convince people to be advocates for something than to be, um, you know, staunchly opposed to something or against something. Right. Um, and so I really, really like her use of the word pro-human or being pro-human, you know, pro-humanity, um, because I think it's really kind of all encompassing. Right. Like I'm just for people. I love people and I love humans and we all deserve dignity and respect. And that's what I'm going to be for. So I really have to get you the name of that scholar. But I heard that a couple of weeks ago and I was really impressed by that nomenclature. Yeah, no, it, it certainly sounds sounds good, uh, and I hope that we, as a human species, can get to that particular point. How I know I know you you're not well versed in it, but just on your own thoughts, what what are your thoughts about the ability of human beings to be able to do that? We got to fight millions of years of evolution to to get to that particular point, and you think it's okay? Well, you know, this is my jam because I literally had my first two degrees from Harvard are in psychology and human development. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be a nurturist and an epigeneticist. And let me explain what that means. 
basically, you know, and this is this is going to tie into some of the things we're talking about tonight, right? Um, I really do believe that people are shaped by their environment. Literally, we now know that our genes literally change and respond to our environment. I really do believe in behavioral conditioning um, and the fact that pe things, people can learn and unlearn things. So when it comes to being pro-human, we are born pro-human, right? Like we are born as social beings. Um, hate is not innate. And we've talked about this, right? So we learn through experiences and through our families and through the adults around us, how to equate differences with deficits. And that's how we develop racist point of views, sexist point of views, homophobic and transphobic point of views. But those things are not innate. We know that very, very young children have questions about differences and they notice differences, but they haven't yet learned to, you know, to, to, to overlay adult racism and adult sexism and adult xenophobia. So I think we're born pro-human. We are born to be social. We are born with the capacity to love, a high capacity to love and a high capacity to forgive. And if we are born that way, then there's no way we can't get through all these shootings and all this violence and all these issues without radical human love for one another. I'm very hopeful, very hopeful. Radical human love, I like that term. That's a term we need to coin, radical human love. <laughs> It, it seems to be it, it has to be radical right in order to be that way yes hey <laughs> hey Zakia, thanks for joining in and to anyone else who's we had a couple of viewers before uh so anyone else who's dropped in make sure that you guys comment question and, and all that kind of stuff really appreciate you guys stopping in to join dr jackson and myself tonight as we try to chop it up and try to get some to some understanding uh as to uh you know what's going on here in this this here world or the united states that we're that we're mostly dealing with because this seems to be a particular issue that is particular to the united states right not just not mass shootings but school shootings in particular seem to be a u.s phenomenon so having said that what are your thoughts about today's incident as we talk about may 24th there was a school shooting down in texas Roberson, Robeson school or something like that. What are your thoughts about, about that? Um, so first of all, I'm definitely going to offer more than thoughts and prayers because I, uh, that's it. I can't, take any, I can't take any more of the thoughts and prayers. Uh, I can't you know, do it. I can't and, do and, it. By, and by the way, I'm a Christian, right? Like I'm a card carrying Christian. So I believe actually in the power of prayer and putting the positive thoughts out there. So I, I am not belittling or besmirching the power of prayer, but I just, I have some thoughts, right? So I have, so one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll share with you is that um, years ago, I was fortunate enough to go to China on a Fulbright scholarship. And I remember that when we, group of Americans were there, we, we, we asked a group of students, what are your thoughts about the United States? Do you wanna come visit us? Do you wanna come live there? What are your thoughts? And I remember so many of them said, oh my God, no, um, you have so much violence. There's so many shootings. Like you could go to the mall and you could be shot. And one girl, she tickled me. She said, well, I feel like I should be, I should uh, learn how to take, you know, learn Kung Fu before I go. And at the time I was like, that's ridiculous. You know, like of all the things that you could say or, or of all the ways that you could characterize the United States, why would you choose like gun violence? And I don't know if it was because I was just more naive. I mean, I watched, I've always been a news junkie, but over the years, I still think about that. 
I still think about the way that we are positioned globally and how people probably look at us police and think we're more than crazy, just a topic. right? For having all this gun availability Hunter, and for type, shooting kids and people grocery and shopping. Book, this is not a war, reform. right? We don't have, you know, we don't, we're, we're, not, we're not in, America, in the middle of a civil war. Yeah, right? Um, so, <laughs> no, so I, I think a lot about the way these young Chinese students were conceptualizing the United States as an unsafe place. And then with regards to the Buffalo shooting the other day, you know, there were some African-American shoppers who said, it just feels like nowhere is safe. That's a verbatim quote, right? Like, it feels like nowhere is safe. So I have a special place in my heart for children, right? Because I was a teacher long before I was a teacher, educator, and a professor of education. I was a school teacher. I was a preschool teacher, a kindergarten teacher. I taught speech and drama and debate to middle schoolers. And so I love being in school. And that that was my happy place. Um, and so the fact that someone would go in an open fire is heartbreaking. Um, but what I want to say is that the shooter, I believe his last name is Ramos down in Texas, um, Uvalde, Texas, maybe. Um, I, I have questions about mental health, right? Like I have the same questions about this shooter that people are going to definitely conjure up about the Buffalo shooter because that's a white male. That's a misguided, lone gunman, aberrant, you know, replacement theory, Kool-Aid drinker, you know, lone gunman who acted alone and doesn't represent the rest of his demographic. So people are going to ask, what can we do about mental health? Right? I'm going to ask the same question about, you know, uh, about Ramos, the shooter in tech. What, what, what produced, what was going on? You know, what is the state of mental health? What was his mental health like? Right. Same thing for the shooter, uh, the, the Asian American shooter in Laguna Hills, California last Sunday. Right. Who shot up a church full of Taiwanese Americans. Right. I have questions about mental health. I do not have questions about immigration and how we're letting too many of these people in the country. I do not have questions about why they are all so violent. I do not have questions about anything about the, the identities and the racial group to which they belong, because no one's going to ask those questions about the Buffalo white shooter. So those are my questions. I am very heavy hearted, but I'm going to ask the same questions about those shooters of color as other people are going to insist we pose about this white 18 year old intentional shooter. Uh, well, that's a good segue there. What what are your thoughts when they say this kind of ridiculous nonsense? And I certainly know that you're being sarcastic there. For the, anyone who wasn't catching it, these questions are asked. Uh, it is always going to mental health. They are one-offs, lone wolves. Uh, it's not a serious problem, right? The police, uh, typical, you know, move along here, nothing to see here, right, kind of thing. And we all know it's it's the exact opposite, right? So, what is your thoughts? Um, when they, when you hear these types of things, uh, when you see these types of things on Fox News in particular, or other newscasts, or or, or even our politicians who are so reluctant to call these things what, by what, but what we, what, what we all know, right? Yeah. So I think one of the most interesting things about when. And I actually do think that it's interesting that these shootings are happening so close together, right? Because it, it's going to be interesting how these things continue to play out in the media. But I already know they're playing out very differently, right? So part of my specialty, um, actually, my PhD is in this, but I studied, you know, critical white studies, right? So, and I actually wrote an article on Medium. So for folks who want to read more, go to medium.com. But I wrote an article called How Whiteness Works. Because one of the most interesting things about this string of shootings, or really any shooting, is to see how a white shooter is cast in the media as opposed to shooters of color, 
right? Because a white shooter, based on the way whiteness works, they don't represent anyone else but themselves, right? A benefit, um, you could say a, an unearned advantage, a privilege, if you will, of whiteness is that I just represent myself. I, I, you, I can behave any old kind of way, literally, and no one is going to say, well, you know, they're all like that, <laughs> right? Because that's the definition of racism. That's when you begin invoking stereotypes. There's a really good film that I used to show years ago when I was a professor, and it was called Skin Deep. And this African-American man said, when a black shoplifter steals something in a store, we are all affected because we are all black. We are all physically black. And now everyone is going to overlay whatever wrong that person did on our entire group. That's not true for white shooters. That's not true for white people. They are free to represent themselves instead of an entire race or group. So I have thoughts, you know, about whenever there's a white shooter, it's like, oh, what could we have done to, to prevent this or to save him? Was he bullied? I mean, I remember the Columbine shootings, right? What did these boys endure, you know, that produced this aberrant behavior? Because we would expect this from animals. Right. We would expect this from people that we cast as being very close to primates. Right. I.e. people of color, specifically black people, specifically black men. We would expect that. That's not aberrant behavior for them. That fits the stereotype. That fits the archetype type of who we think they are. Right. So I, I just I think that this is a case study in stereotyping and how whiteness works, because we ask very different questions when there's a white shooter, because they're salvageable, they're redeemable, their lives are valuable. What led this person who would ordinarily have perfect behavior do this, as opposed to shooters of color, right? Because we expect that from them. So now our stereotypes have been confirmed, right? That's called confirmation bias. So I have multiple questions about all the shootings, but I want us to pay special and close attention even about the fact that the white shooter was taken in alive, right? I was on a podcast literally last year um, on, on a show called uh, Free Radio Brooklyn. And in this show, uh, I think it's ex, uh, uh, episode 168, Systems at Work, I talk about how when the shooter is white and violent and murderous, like a Dylan Roof, right? Like uh, the guy who shot up the Colorado theater, we know who they are because they are taken in alive. Whereas unarmed black people are shot up in their sleep or shot dead in the street. So I'm interested to see how these, uh, how these shootings are going are gonna to play out because I think I already know the playbook and racism is very much a part um, of, of, how that play, of, of how this will work out. To your to your point about white privilege not being a real thing, I've been watching a few videos uh, when they challenge uh, the the concept of white privilege. Um, so they're saying it's not real that black people have uh, the same uh, amount of access to the same things that white people do, um, and, and there is no such thing as white privilege. Now, to some of that, I, I give credence to, to the argument, but I want to hear your argument. And when you say that white privilege actually does exist where others would say it doesn't exist. Yeah, I am. I have to tell you, I'm not even going to debate whether it exists. I'm just going to, to share how it exists. Um, <laughs> I mean, just because I just let's talk about gravity here. Let's, I let's... <laughs> I'm going to be aggressively evasive, but here, but I will give you some, some, some fodder. So one of the things that motivated the Buffalo shooter was replacement theory, right? white replacement theory. <laughs> 
Um, there are white people in this country who are terrified about the changing demographics, right? The fact that we are going to be pretty much equal in number with people of color and white folks in about 2042, 2053, depending on, you know, where you get your statistics from. That's very much, that's rather close, right? Like I'm hoping to sort of see that before I die. My question is, what are you so concerned about, right? My, my, my call to you would be, People of color aren't looking to take anything from you, right? They're just looking to compete fairly and be treated like humans, right? So we're, we're actually not, women aren't coming for you. Like people of color and women and minoritized groups, we're, we don't want to take anything from you. We just want to live free and fully human lives, right? So that's A. But, 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 but replacement theory is really interesting because there are white people who are terrified that folks are going to replace them. And it's like, well, if you don't occupy positions of power or comfort or privilege, what are you worried about? Where where might we replace you? Might we replace you by equally, you know, by fairly competing for jobs that you don't want to share and you know have you know other people to have? Might we be your neighbor? You don't want us to live in your neighborhoods. Um, might we be in your schools? Might we go to college and sit alongside you? Like. Why are you so, where are you that you are so concerned about being replaced? And I think the irony of that is that they're saying, well, we don't want to admit that we have any cultural advantage and that we don't experience privilege and unearned advantage, but we still want what we have and we don't want to give it up or share it with anybody else. And I think that's really interesting. Um, so cultural replacement is really interesting. Now, when it comes to, you know, this whole privilege argument, one of the things that I, I always loathe having to talk about um, in my diversity, inclusion, accessibility sessions is when people want to sort of talk about, um, you know, reverse racism or when a white person is left out or a man is left out or a straight person is left out. And one of the first questions I ask is, Oh, okay. Well, if you are concerned about a single white person being uh, excluded, or if you're concerned about an LGBTQ plus member being, you know, included when a straight person, was, you know, my question is, if you are outraged by the reverse racism, what was the original racism with which you are completely content? What is the everyday situation that does not affect you, right? Or that affects you favorably? that you have no qualms with to the point that you can't even admit it exists, right? But if you don't get a scholarship, if you don't get a job that you think you rightfully deserve, if you lose the presidency, if you lose a seat in the house, if you lose anything that you feel is 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 rightfully yours by entitlement, then, then why are you spending so much time denying that you have some type of unearned advantage? So again, I, the, ra the reverse racism argument I do, don't do well with, um, I, there's no privilege I don't do well with. Um, I do think that we need to consider, you know, things like an intersectionality because people experience varying levels of advantage based on their identities. Um, but yeah, white privilege exists. Um, and I think we need to be honest and real about that. Otherwise, why would you be worried about what people are coming for? Why would, what, why would you be worried about being replaced if you don't inherently acknowledge that you were on top in control and culturally advantaged. That's the question. To the to the replacement theory thing, um, that was thought up by some French scholar, if I if I'm remembering correctly, and caught on in France, and now it's here and wherever else you know where this craziness is going on. Young kids being impressionable. This kid was 18. 
are they catching on to something because they see that they don't have the advantages of their parents? Uh, they see that they see exactly what you're saying, that uh, this country that we uh, established, we built all this kind of stuff. Now, I, I, I'm going to grow up and I have to compete for a job. I have to compete for a place Fairly. in the classroom. Fairly. <laughs> I have to complete, compete for a place in the classroom, for a job, um, for, you know, political office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where we, before it was just the way it was. And these young impressionable kids who, who can't compete are maybe just upset and therefore taking their anger out on, on, on others. Is that, is that what we're looking at here with the Buffalo shooter? I think what these young people or anybody who is um, seduced by cultural replacement theory or white replacement theory is that they are confusing number with power, right? Um, number doesn't equal power. It just doesn't. Um, we can go to any African country, for example, we're li literally almost any African country and see a very small number, number of white and European people who control wealth and resources, natural resources, financial resources, access to banking, power in government, infrastructure, diamonds, homes, real estate, whatever it is. And they are a very small minority. So I think what's really un unfortunate about the United States is that people are like, oh my gosh, the people of color are coming. And what's interesting is that the fastest growing minority group is actually Asian people. And nobody's up in arms about that. I'm just like, you're, no one's concerned about that. We're, we're talking about the border, the Southern border. We're talking about Haitians. Like no one's concerned about Asians. Okay. I think there's a reason for that. But my point is this, right? Number doesn't equal power. We can have a, a country where the majority of, of people are of color, right? We could have that scenario, not just in 20 or 30 years, but in 50 years. But that's not going to change who has access to generational wealth, who has access to governance, who has access to institutions like law enforcement and education, right? And financial and banking industries, right? So people are afraid for no reason. Number doesn't equal power. Power equals power. So I think that re replacement theory is senseless because it's, a qu I mean, it, I don't know very much about it. I have to say, I haven't spent any time trying to find this scholar because it's just, it's, it's not, it's uninteresting to me because it's founded on white fear. And yet because number doesn't equal power, what are you so afraid of? You claim you don't have privilege. Number doesn't equal power. What is wrong? I don't get it. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a second. So in the case of law enforcement or any other civil service jobs, teaching, um, firefighter, uh, maintenance worker, whatever, before uh, civil rights, uh, before the establishment of civil service commissions, particularly in larger cities, they did have access to that, right? So in, in access to these particular jobs was an access to or access to or to to or a maintenance of the civil of uh, middle-class citizenship. So now if I got to go in and take a test and I don't test as well as another person, right? Then that's what they see the loss of power at. That's what they see the loss of income. Um, when, when I have had friends who've told me that you know, when they became police officers that they, you know, somebody came up to them in the locker room and said, you know, you, you shouldn't have got this job. You're only here because of X or you're here because of or that. You're only here because of your skin color. Right. So I came on and I came on to the job in 1995. So things are changing since then. 
and certainly uh, culturally, uh, demographically, things have changed. But this is a this is a concern back then, and it's a concern now. I'm sure that this 18 year old kid or the other one who shot up the the South Carolina uh, church there. They had these things in their mind that they were going to grow up and not have the ability to compete. They had to go take a civil service test. It wasn't a guarantee that they would get into college. It wasn't a guarantee that I could call my uncle and get this job over here. And so, therefore, this is the fear that they have. And, you know, whether it's rational or irrational, I, I appreciate you laying out the fact that it's an irrational fear. It's nevertheless a, a one that is causing them to act out. It's causing them to storm the capital of uh, Michigan. Statement, state of Michigan. Because of that, they stormed the capital of the United States. Uh, this is this is a real problem uh, that they have within their minds, and uh, we got to figure out a way to deal with this. Um, go ahead. So, so, what I would say to that, and I apologize if I cut you off, but um, what I would say to that is, when you are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. So what I'm having trouble with here, and, and you'll have to excuse me because this is not a theoretical exercise for me. This is this is real life, right? You, like you said, people are really shooting people because they feel like they feel afraid. My question is, human brilliance is sprinkled evenly across all races, all sexes, all sexual identities, and all socioeconomic statuses. So we should always be competing fairly for what we deserve. Now, the idea that I only that someone wants to accuse me or you of, of maybe I only got into Harvard, not meritoriously and not because I'm brilliant and worked hard, but because I'm not white, that comports with white, white, white racial dominance, also called white supremacy. This idea that white people or males or whichever dominant group we're talking about are inherently better and more deserving of things and power and positionality. I challenge that. Because that's not true. It's also just inherently unjust and unfair. So when you talk to these police officers or middle class people or working class people or whoever they are, and they're saying, man, you know, now there's like a Latino dude at my job. Or now, you know, there's an African-American police captain next to me. Or in my case, my white classmates at Harvard are saying, oh, man, there's a multiracial mixed with black and Asian girl in my class. What does that mean for me? It means that we're in this place both meritoriously because it's called white supremacy when you think you got here because you deserve it because you're inherently smarter and I somehow cut the line and cheated. That's called racism. And if we're talking about women, that's called sexism. So I think that you are right in the sense that, and, and I actually, interestingly enough, I actually work a lot, not only with white people, but with poor white people, because they have a really hard time saying, man, you know, I, I'm, I'm white and I understand that a little bit, but I'm also socioeconomically disadvantaged and I'm feeling the pinch of this ensuing recession. And I feel like maybe I'm not going to be able to provide for my family like the way I used to. Oh, you mean when things were unfair and when they unfairly dis you know, advantaged you? So let's talk through that because that's the part you're not willing to admit. So we can get to a place where everyone can compete fairly, right? I mean, I think that the most terrifying part of equity and social justice is the idea that if you gave everyone an equal footing and if everybody veritably had boots, that you would get some people of color and women and differently able people outrunning you. And that's what people are trying to protect and hold on to. Because it's like, wait a minute, I'm accustomed to winning. 
But I'm saying nobody's going to lose if we're all competing fairly. I just, I, I'm not for unfair competition. So it can't stay this way. Why would, why would I endorse that? So I, no, I, I acknowledge the fear. I acknowledge the, you know, the real sort of, you know, consternation. But I also acknowledge that I'm here to create level playing fields so everyone can compete fairly for what they want in life. I just, that's the only way. Now, what is it that you work for the DOD? Who, what is, who are you working yeah, with now for? I'm so fortunate. Oh my goodness. I work for the Department of Defense uh, right when I finished, uh, you know, when I left academia and I, I stopped being a professor. And then I got a chance to go back to the Department of Defense in a different role um, and at a larger agency. So, yeah. So I actually think through, it's called strategy and innovation. So it's basically like, how do you take a 30,000 mile high view of an organization and turn the ship around and get them to focus on dignity and respect and equity? How do you do that? That's what I get to think about every day. So it's a really fantastic job. Nice. And so that had to be a, a male dominated job, particularly a white male dominated job. So you've had, I'm sure, can you tell us whether people have had these exact fears, whether they were middle class or lower middle class, uh, Obviously, you coming in there and you've had, to, I, I think I mentioned this before to you. I, so, I mean, even though I taught implicit bias, uh, sometimes I would hate doing it because, okay, here's another black guy teaching this class, right? So here's a, here's a, a mixed race, non-white person, female teaching this class, teaching us uh, about diversity, inclusion, equity, all that kind of stuff. Uh, how, did, how did, how did the, the how did your men receive your message that they was there a collective size and rolling of the eyes when you're talking or that they really get on board with 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 your philosophy or well, the philosophy of what we're all trying to get to a fairness equity and all that so first of all i'm i'm actually shocked that they let me work there <laughs> i think we all know i'm you know and i was very honest about this in my application and in my interview i was like look here i'm coming from a liberal arts background in academia we say all the things we push the envelope we invent new words we make people uncomfortable if you can get comfortable with being uncomfortable i can come and work with you and and we and we can do this and i much to my surprise the department of defense said you know what it's time you know it's time we have lots of academics who say lots of things and if, you know and we really want you to come and say all the things and help us to turn our rudders and to get this ship right Part of what I love about working for the Department of Defense in particular is that it's it's military, right? We are a CSA, a combat ser serving or uh, so, uh, agency, right? Combat serving organization. And basically what I love about the military is that it's like, all right, military, when I look at this picture of all these generals, I see a lot of white men. Is that really the best we can do? Are you telling me that that uh, really that white men make the best military decisions, have the best perspectives, know all the languages? Have, are you telling me that really only white men can do that? And it's like, mm, yeah, no, you know, promote, you know, when it's time to get promoted, the boards tend to be other white men. We tend, you know, like gravitates toward like. So no, we actually can do much better. And we have to do better because in the military, Right. We are all over the world and it takes all kinds to win wars. So we will never win wars and do what we need to do around the world if everybody looks like a white man. That is a problem. 
We need people who know local, local culture. We need people who are from the United States, like African-Americans and Latinx folks and women who can bring a different perspective to what we're trying to do globally and domestically. So we will lose wars. We will not be able to come up with the best decisions to complex problem sets. We will not be able to think through issues and come up with better results if we are monocultural. So can you help us be more diverse at every level? And that's really how I wish every organization would approach it because that's science. That's not just relevant to the military. Businesses are more profitable even when you have one person on your board who's diverse, a woman, a person of color, someone who has a different national origin. So I wish people just understood better the business case for diversity because the Department of Defense gets it. That's an interesting conversation that I'm not going to have tonight. <laughs> It's an interesting conversation I'm have tonight about about winning wars and and all that. So, yeah, I think you know exactly where I'm going with that. Um, <laughs> we're not going to do that tonight, though. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, so I definitely agree that more people need to be in the boardroom making helping to make these type of decisions. On a side note, I read uh, a story tonight about uh, I guess Walmart had some kind of Juneteenth ice cream. Yes, red velvet and cheesecake. <laughs> Yes. Yes. This is what happens when you don't have us in the room. Or, <laughs> you know, one, of the, one of the images I used to show my <clears throat> when I was a professor is Adidas years ago came up with um, Adidas shoes that literally had shackles, plastic shackles around the ankle. You have to Google. I remember it. that. I remember that. And then and then there were uh, there were t-shirt t-shirts that said "Slave to Fashion." And then um, for women's suffrage, for the movie that Meryl Streep was involved in, there was a t-shirt made that said, I'd rather be a rebel than a slave, right? If one black person was in that boardroom, those shirts and shoes would never have been made. Just one or one anti-racist person, literally of any other race. That's why it's important to create allies because we can't always have an African-American or a woman or a Latinx person or a lesbian in the room to say, uh, uh, excuse me, no, no, that's offensive or that's culturally insensitive or that's cultural appropriation, right? And we can't, we, we don't always get that. But what we can do is to create people who look like anything, who understand anti-racism and pro-humanity. So, so sidebar. So yeah, no. Uh here, here's where I appreciate, and I always love having you on because you're so optimistic and so bubbly. And I, and sometimes I'm just so down in the dumps because I sent someone that, uh, um, just today. I sent, I think it was today. I sent someone a an Instagram of a. It was a la lady giving a talk, and I'm pretty sure she was from Georgia, and she was giving a talk about how our ancestors came over here. Uh, the forefathers came over here and moved the Indians off, slaughtered them, took them out their homes so we could celebrate Christianity and we could love our neighbors and all that kind of stuff. It was incredibly, incredibly insensitive and offensive, but she meant it in the and didn't realize the insensitivity of her words in that we, and her point was, we are here to love, to love God, love Christianity in our way and to, to be Christians. And the reason we can do that is because our forefathers, ancestors came over here and slaughtered the, slaughtered the natives of this land. Some people, 
to go back to what we were just talking about, some people just really just don't get it. And so some people will make up these different shirts. They'll make up these different shoes. I remember that kid, um, there was a, there was a young black kid, probably like eight or nine years old. And he would, he, he was a model and he, Every, it was other different models, uh, little kids his age, and they made this one black kid wear something like uh, I, the monkey don't stop no show or something like that. It was what? <laughs> how do you know? How do your parents not see this? You know, obviously, parents probably just need the money or whatever. But there's, it's it's there beneath the surface, and I wonder sometimes if the work that you're doing, I'm doing, other people are doing, are really just suppressing it. And therefore, when we when we suppress this, we get all, all this stuff, race inclusion and all this. We see, we think everyone's happy go lucky. The next thing you know, we get a Donald Trump in the office, and he rips the bandaid off, overturns a rock, and every and all these different vermin sneak out. So this is the problem I'm having. Is and this is what I'm going back to before is, can we really get to that particular place, or are we just suppressing something? Until it boils over into a school shooting, into a buffalo, into a store shooting, into a, a nightclub shooting of LGBT community, or or whatever, are we just suppressing it, or are we really making some deep, hardcore changes, as you said, to our DNA because of the environment? Mm -hmm. No, that's so. I'm gonna remain optimistic. I, optimism warning. Do do do. I have to tell you, I because I just and 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 I have I have taken up this intellectual and practical argument before, right? So let me just just entertain me for two seconds. You know, I uh, am well versed in critical race theory, which gets a bad rap on the street. But literally, yeah. I have a whole PhD essentially in critical race theory and 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 that using that framework. What is your PhD? I don't even know what it is. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's actually my PhD is in a couple of things: um, multicultural education, but specifically critical race theory and critical whiteness studies, um, teacher education, and any sort of adult learning and urban education reform. Um, so that, that's what my PhD is. And it's, it's a PhD in educational studies. So I got to do all those things. But part of what I did when I was a grad student, great segue, is that I took on one, literally the founder of Critical Race Theory, who was Derek Bell, African-American attorney, right? Um, who, whose original arguments stem from critical legal studies saying, hey, the law isn't blind. Justice isn't blind. Let's talk about institutional isms, whether it's racism, sexism, you know, uh, xenophobia. Let's talk about it. Right. But one of his one of the tenets, if you will, of critical race theory is racial realism, which says that racism, it, for example, is so profitable and so deeply entrenched into the foundational underpinnings of this country. It will never go away. We will never overcome it. The best we can do is to try to pinch away at it and make progress and, and try to you know dismantle it little by little, but we will never overcome it. And I read that and was like, no, nope, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm sorry. Perhaps it's my background, as we mentioned earlier, in psychology, specifically nurture psychology, specifically epigenetics, right? Specifically human development, where I know for a fact that this, that racism and sexism and other isms are learned behaviors. And anything that you can teach, you can unteach. And anything you can fabricate, you can destroy. So no, I do think that if ever you feel 
overwhelmed, right, by the enormity of the task before us, you have every right to, to feel, you know, that enormity. I often feel a little bit burned out. I feel exhausted. Sometimes after things like this, I just crash hard and go to bed and, you know, flowers in my hair the whole night, right? Because I'm just, I'm intellectually spent, right? But, but the one thing that I know for sure is that small changes make a huge difference and single irritants can cause big disruption. And if you don't believe me, get a small pebble in your boot, get a single hangnail on your finger, get a single grain of sand in a cast, get one eyelash in your eye with a contact lens. If you think for one moment that one person can't make a difference or one, you know, one cause, you know, believed in by lots of, you know, different people all around the world can't make a dent in racism and sexism and shooting and violence. No, I disagree with that. So I will not go with you down negative road because I know human behavior and we can do better than that and we will do better than that. Very good. I, I appreciate again your your optimism. I, re yeah, I really really do. It my yeah. optimism doesn't stop. Sorry, uh, uh, apologetically optimistic because I know how the human brain works. Very good. So uh, let, let's explain this, Miss 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 uh, op Miss Optimism here. Yes. Uh, explain uh, this uh, the imminent change that we all know is coming to Roe v. Wade segment here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, my, my stance is, if you don't want abortions, don't get one. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, you know how more simple that, that could be. But people are panicked on one side, and they are jumping for joy on the other side. Um, what are your thoughts about this um, and all that? This, this to me is a monumental moment in history because this feels very 50 years ago. Right. Like, this, I mean, this feels I, I wasn't alive. I'm only 43. So I was not. But this feels very cyclically old. And this feels like a tired argument. But let me just let me tell you my thoughts on abortion. And again, I, I said earlier that I'm a Christian. So I just want to reiterate that because people might be shocked by what I'm about to say. Um, if you walked up to me off the street and said, hey, Dr. Jackson, lover of children since you were a child, you know, you, I, I mean, I don't have any children, but Dr. Captain Hunter, I can't wait to be a mom. I, I have waited my whole life to have babies. I love children. I've never been pregnant. And oh my goodness, when that happens, I'm going to be so excited, right? Um, under the right circumstances, right? But, but so here's the thing. If someone came up to me off the street and said, hey, do you think it's a good idea to kill babies? I'd be like, what? What kind of an animal would do that? That's insane. But if you asked me the question, about whether it it's okay, you know, to take away a woman's right to choose whether she's going to bear a child, I'd be like, oh, I mean, no, that's not okay. Because here are some instances where I've seen abortion really make sense. Um, when I was in graduate school and my friend was uh, getting um, uh, a degree from Purdue University out in Indiana, she was a school counselor. And the one thing that she kept telling me that she kept dealing with in her office and with her students was girls who would come in as victims of incest, not pregnant by a classmate, not pregnant by even a cousin or an uncle, literally pregnant by their fathers, literally in high school, pregnant by their husband. And I just thought to myself, that can't be the number one thing you deal with. That's insane. That's story number one. I know women uh, who are very close to me 
um, who have been repeatedly sexually assaulted um, and raped by an uncle. Uh, freshman year of college, I, I know a person who, who has had to endure that and is still dealing with the effects of that. Women who are very close to me have been married and already have children, which fits the demographic of an awful lot of women who go to Planned Parenthood, by the way, right? Smashes a stereotype. When married and have children just say, hey, it wasn't the right time. I'm married. I'm in a loving relationship. I already have children and will have more later, but I just can't do this right now. Right. And also know women who have been medically, you know, sort of uh, advised, hey, this is the, based on your amniocentesis and based on modern medicine. This is what we know about the condition of your child. This is what we know about the, the effects on your health. If you carry it to full term, what is your decision? In all of those scenarios on no planet, should we say, oh, no, victim of rape and incest. You definitely that's God's will. Right. You've got to carry that baby to term. Again, I'm a Christian and I think that there are no surprises to the good Lord, right? So I think that nothing escapes his, att his attention. But I think that the one thing he really did want for us, if I understand my religion and the Bible correctly, is free will. Now we have to deal with the consequences of what we choose in life. But the one thing he wanted us to have was free will. So if the most high God that I believe in espouse this idea that I have the right to decide whether I'm going to sin, whether I'm going to accept Christ, whether I'm going to be a good person or whether I'm going to be bad. Who are we as humans to regulate what these women can do with the with, with their babies and their bodies? Um, that's what I have to say about abortion. The last thing I'll say, though, about people who say and politicians who say they are pro-life. If you say you are pro-life, and you are not for universal health care. You don't want to provide health care to the woman or the baby. You don't want to provide affordable housing. You don't want to raise the minimum wage and to have equitable, you know, thriving salaries and wages. And you don't want to fund education and you don't want to forgive student loans. You are not pro-life. You're just pro-birth. I think that was well said and I absolutely agree with that. Um, I also take uh, great, uh, I, I think it's a great deal of hypocrisy to say I'm pro-life and then they'll support the death penalty. You know, that's that's just, which a lot of them do, you know? So I, I just I just find the whole thing very, very interesting. Uh, have you talked to any of your friends who, and do they share the same mindset as you? This is a good thing. Have you talked to anyone who said this is a good thing? Do you know any of those type of people? appreciate the question um, because we we tend to surround like, you know, likes like, right? So like gravitates toward like. So I, but I actually do try to make a point of being friends who are different, you know, opposite, diametrically opposed on the political spectrum. Trump supporters, staunch Republicans, um, you know, very conservative people because I, I enjoy diversity, right? I have not spoken to a single woman and I, I have a lot of Christian friends, right? So you would think that they would fit maybe this conservative demographic of, oh no, that's God's will. Yeah, I haven't spoken to a single woman who's like, yeah, let's go back and reveal Roe v. Wade, right? What I have heard is people say, wow, this seems really draconian. Um, this seems completely irrelevant. This seems like a distraction um, from what we really need to deal with, which is inequality and inequity and all that. Like this seems like, uh, you know, from from the Stone Ages. So one of the questions that my close friend had was who profit, who benefits from this? You know, her, her theory was who 
benefits from limiting abortions to all these women? Who benefits? Right. I mean, is it who who stands to gain something? Is it that we're trying to keep, you know, people who are experiencing poverty even poorer because a lot of women who do seek abortions just feel like they can't afford it? Are we trying to retard women in some way and sort of make sure they don't have an opportunity to fairly enter the workforce? Um, wh who is profiting from this legislation? I just it's it's an enigma to me. But either way, I think it's wrong. I think it's ill timed. And I think there are other things, far better things that we could focus our attention on, like creating more equity for the people who do exist. So I read. I, don't, I read that uh, I think 70% of Americans think that Roe v. Wade is right and we should not repeal it. Um, 70%. That's that's a that's an enormous number. That's a lot. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, you know, the 70%, 70% would make up most Democrats in independence. It's, you know, so it's, it's, it's really, um, it's really a, a very questionable thing. And I, and I appreciate the question that your friend was asking, like, who, who profits from it? Because I've been trying to wrap my head around that as well. Because uh, you don't want to fund the people we have, right? Like none of what I said, you don't want to have universal health care. You don't even want to have universal child care. You don't want to have wages. You don't, what, what do you think is going to happen with these, with these humans? What are we going to do with them? How are we going to educate them? And you made a good point. Like more parents gonna have to stay home. More single mothers out there have to stay home on welfare uh, because they can't get to the because you made them have these babies. It's just not to mention how many people are gonna sneak across the border or have backroom backroom kind of things or how many doctors are gonna put in jail and they're talking about putting all these doctors in jail and all this stuff. Um, yeah, it's really really a question, a very inquisitive, very uh, interesting item for me because. Um, yeah, who profits from this? Why are they doing it? You hear all these different conspiracy theories as to they want more uh, lower class people uh, to, to work to work in these so called sweatshops and lower end jobs, and or even if maybe even as part of that great replacement theory, make more yes. make more white women have yes. babies. Yeah, I've heard that as well. I've heard yeah. that as well. But I do have some recommendations. I don't know if anybody's going to take me up on these. Um, I do have some recommendations. First of all, I think we should focus on male birth control. Because you made a really good point about how when women, when a couple comes together, whether it was consensual or non-consensual, the burden and the onus of carrying that child and then subsequently caring for that child for, you know, the rest of their lives, that disproportionately falls on women, right? Because we have men who are disproportionately not supporting children. So I think the first thing we need to do is focus on male birth control. And we probably need to mandate that. Because one woman can only produce one human child every nine to 10 months, right? A full term is 40 weeks. Whereas a man can have sex multiple times per day and produce multiple children literally per day, right? And we're not even talking about twins and triplets and quintuplets and all that. So I think the first thing we need to do is to mandate male birth control. Right. Um, and I think that if we could really focus on that and really focus on regulating and legislating the male body, I think this argument might go away. The other thing that we could do is to ban all birth control, particularly for extramarital lover, lovers of legislators. Right. We know adultery happens. We know infidelity happens. I think we should ban birth control for every legislator, every lawmaker who is currently having an affair. 
Um, and I think abortion laws would be reinstated immediately. I mean, I know that sounds outrageous, but um, maybe not, because to me, what's going on now sounds outrageous. So maybe I'm just meeting them quid pro quo. No, I've heard. Uh, first, I couldn't tell. I'm like, are you serious? Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but yes, no, I definitely get your point. Uh, it, it really is right. And, and, and the, the, there is such a level of hypocrisy because the same legislatures who write these type of laws will then turn around and uh, give themselves, you know, Viagra. And <laughs> right. It, it's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. Right. So, so yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's definitely a problem. It's definitely draconian. It's definitely a blast from the past. Why are we talking about this? What, what's going on here? And I, and I truly believe that, that a part of it has to be this part of this racist uh, uh, replacement there. We got to have more white people having more white babies. We got to have it. And then, of course, when you get you get you know some black talking heads on there too about how many black babies are being aborted. You know that nauseates me too, quite honestly. Again, if, if people don't want to have babies, don't have the abortion. Right? If you don't if you don't want the abortion, don't get it. Nobody's sticking the gun to anyone's head and, and, and doing all that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap up now. I've had you here for a little, for a little while. I really, really appreciate it. Um, what, uh, so you're still writing for medium. You've got yes. a couple of articles that you said you were coming out. Tell us about those. Or, yeah. Or... So I have a couple of things in the hopper, right? Um, I, I work a lot, you know, I essentially, you know, I've got my consulting and then I love my job at the department of defense and I work, I still work with the equity literacy Institute on my off time and on weekends. So I'm a busy woman. I work, you know, eight days a week. Um, but I do have, I, I am going to make a little bit more time to write as soon as I get settled into my new home. One article that I'm going to write is called um, It's Lonely Being the Only, because I really want to talk about lack of representation and sort of really high level positions in senior leadership, because I've noticed that everywhere I've ever worked, the higher I go, the less I see of me, of myself, right? The, le the fewer women, the fewer people of color. And I'm not sure what to do with that, because I, I told you earlier, I'm tired of being a chip in a cookie. I'm tired of being a, ch a lone chocolate chip in a cookie with a frustrating ratio of chip to cookie. There's too much cookie. There's not enough chip. And I really want to talk about that. The other thing that I want to talk about is actually you might like this because it's perpetually optimistic. But the other article that I'm going to write is called the, um, the, the Irony of Exclusion and Inclusion. And what I mean by that is as we, you know, part of my job, right, is to get people to care about and embrace diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility, right? This, this idea that we can all compete fairly, that injustice is uncool, right? And that we all deserve to get, you know, the liberty and justice and peace and all the things and so we can self-actualize. But what ends up happening and what, what people end up hearing, especially people who are in privileged or empowered groups is that they're like, oh my God, they're coming for my job or they're they're coming for me or we're gonna have to have quotas. We're gonna have to hire people who aren't qualified. We're gonna, you know, they get really afraid. So my point is that I want to make sure that we are including everybody in the diversity circle because those are the very people we need at the table, right? If we're talking about LGBTQ plus things, we need straight people, 
right? If we're talking about sexism and anti-sexism, I need men, right? Because you have the power to advocate for us and be allies. And if we're talking about race relations and racism and anti-racism, we need white people, white men and white women at the table. So I'm going to write that article soon because I don't want anyone who has the power to advocate for justice and respect and dignity for all to feel like they're on the sidelines or, or, or moreover, to feel threatened by diversity, equity, inclusion. We, we talked about that. So now we're full circle. So I'm going to write that article as soon as I get a free moment. I don't have very many free moments, but I'm going to write it soon. So thanks for helping me plug that. No, absolutely. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um... Yeah, I, I think that, that that's always that to me is is the um, is the defining problem that we need to have is the people who benefit the most from these different things being a part of the advocacy for taking them down. And that is the problem, right? When you have more straight people advocating for LGBT and when you have more white males advocating for diversity and inclusion, because all they hear is my job is gone. Yeah. The good, old, the, the, the good old days are, are gone. That's all they hear. Yeah. That's all they that's all they hear. My kids aren't going to be able to get a job because we're going to have to give it to someone else who they probably more than likely would deem to be less worthy or less competent. And undeserving. You know? And right? undeserving and for some reason. Yes. So that, that's the challenge to get them to see the benefits of having a diverse workforce or the benefits of having uh, an equal playing field. Yes. Right? Um, th and that's what it's all about. And sometimes... Now, forgive me, you may know about this, but sometimes I think that they, that they go too far about this, right? I think there was a law, and I may be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a law in California when they wanted to have like like a percentage of the of the, anyone in a boardroom, high management boardroom, be, be a woman or something like that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which was like, how do you legislate that? How do you understand? That mm -hmm. to me is, is like a bridge too far. It's like, come on, you can't, all we want, we, we don't need uh, equality of outcomes. Just Just give us the opportunity. Right. We got to perform just like anyone else. So I so I have mixed feelings about that. So I'm OK with proportional representation because people can forget that women are actually global majorities. Right. People forget all the time that people of color are global majorities. Right. But because we use the word minority to refer to power, which is something we've already talked about, people somehow believe that we are not you know, more than, you know, disproportionately, you know, the, the majority in the world. Women are 52% of the population globally at any point and about 50% of any society at any point. So like you said, if we were able to fairly compete for CEO positions and board positions and leadership at the highest echelons, naturally it would shake out that about 50% of us in the room would be women, right? Oh, no, no. But because of sexism, it doesn't always work out that way, right? Because sexism is in the way. Sexism is in the way. So I, I'm okay with proportional representation. I think legislating it, mandating it—that's what they do in Europe. Uh, so it's not like we don't have, we don't have precedent. But I think it would be a tough sell for some places in the United States. But I don't think there's anything wrong with proportional representation because remember what I said earlier: like when we can compete fairly, we you would see more of us in positions of power. That's my point. Yeah, well, I, I definitely think that if you, it, it's it's about competing fairly. I think that that's the point. Yes. Whether there's still, there might be a greater greater proportion, but not. I can't see being being fifty fifty because people women are still more likely to have a child and to deal with home responsibilities. Now, if given those 
if 50% of the, if a hundred percent of the women are in the workforce, but that's not just, that's just not the case. A hundred percent of the women are not in the workforce. So we can have a different conversation about okay. how right. to shift culture and the climate of institutions to make them more friendly to people who have caregiving roles. That would actually benefit men and women because there are lots of men and women out here taking care of elderly parents and, and family members. And there are lots of men out here who are dedicating lots of time to their children and would dedicate more if it were more socially acceptable and workplace friendly. So I think that the other side of this work, you don't just invite people to your table and give them nothing to eat. You invite people to your table, give them an appropriate meal, and then look around to see how you can transform yourself to make sure you are a welcoming place for those people and all kinds of people. So I think that we would have more proportional representation if we were willing to do more cultural transformation in organizations, right? In order to be a CEO, do you have to work 80 to 90 hours a week? Do you have to? Do you even, I mean, with COVID, do you even have to go to an office? Do you even have to be away from your baby if you're lactating? Like, I think we could ask different questions. Um, and I think we could transform our society to make it more friendly for all kinds of people. That That's what I would say to that. Uh I'm not. I'm not disputing that. I, I definitely no. No, seriously, I'm not. I think. I think that those are those are legitimate arguments. Thank you. Um, but they're not going to happen <laughs> because because. No, no, no. Listen, I would. I would like. Listen, I would like that. I took. I took. You know, when my when my kids were born, I took. I took the full whatever it was they offered. Six week. Yeah, paternity leave. I. I did all. I think. That, I think that's good. I know. I know that they're. That's. It's much more lenient in Europe, and I agree with you. Why should you have to work 80, 90 hours a week in order to make it ahead? And why why is that type of behavior rewarded when the children are left unattended or with nannies and all that, even if you got the money? I agree with you that 100%. We have to change that culture, and that, that culture comes from the people at the top making it, right? And and we reward those who are, hey, hey Jim, you, you've been here 80, 90 hours. Hey, I got this vice president position for you. I mean, that's just, we got to change that. And that's, that's a tough sell. So listen, I know I'm raining on your parade and I don't want to do that, but, but I, and, I, and I'm, I'm behind you philosophically and everything you just said. I really, I really am. I really am. Um, but it's just, a, it's just a hard, hard, tough sell, particularly yeah. in those uh, more male dominated um, spaces, you know, yeah. uh, law, law enforcement, DOD, um, uh, well, fire you, departments. You and all that. A perfect case for why there need to be more women in leadership and decision making and power. Uh, listen, I got no problem. With it. Listen, if we could, if we could all work forty hours a week, you know, I remember, I remember uh, they, they were they were rioting in uh, in France, right? Yeah. Let me like ten years ago or so, because I wanted to go to like thirty five hours a week. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Riots! They're the protesting the streets. You're making us work too much. Thirty two hours, thirty two or thirty five, whatever it was. I'm like, that was meanwhile I was at work doing overtime and stuff. Just you know, <laughs> so. so. It's 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 definitely something that that's worth pushing for, worth fighting for, because everyone is is at a disadvantage from it. You know, more men are men are having heart attacks, and more, more women are having heart attacks, yes. and all the things that that were happening to men yes. are now happening to women because they're working more. They because they want to move up and all this kind of stuff, and yes. so everyone is suffering suffering from this. So we got to rein this back in here, agreed, and, and get and get and get to some uh, real real life uh, good stuff here, so we can enjoy. Uh, not work, you know, 35, 40 years and then drop dead, you know, at, you know, 10 days after we retire, you know. Yeah. Crazy.
I, I'm determined to not work every day until I die. I mean, and if I do work, it's going to be something that doesn't feel like work. Right. So um, part of I'll just say this really quickly. Part of what I appreciate about the pandemic is um, how it led to the value of the worker and the great resignation. And I think it also provided some really good data sets for how people are actually more productive or at least as productive, depending on the type of job. Right. Because I know some not all of them are included in this arena, but I really appreciate what the pandemic revealed about what is absolutely necessary on a job and what is not. I personally am grateful to the DOD because I still telework. Right. And we're kind of, you know, we're kind of I guess you could argue that we're at the end, although I know we're having a resurgence and all that. But I still telework. Um, and I am more, I get up earlier and I stay at this computer later because I can, because I'm yeah. in my pajamas. So, I mean, I'm just, I know I'm an N equals one case study, um, but if I'm that way and I can continue to care for my elderly mom and prepare a briefing and go get her dinner and come right back and write the report, you've now gotten 12 hours out of work from me when it takes me two hours sometimes to drive to DC and back. So I'm just yeah. saying, I really do appreciate what COVID revealed about what is absolutely necessary for professional success. Uh, you, I've talked to so many different people like that. And there was one company, they were like, uh, they were, they were planning to go back to work. And then the, the, the workers complained, the, the workers complained so much. Like why we get more, everything you just said, we get more done. I can do whatever. Uh, I don't got to commute two hours and all this kind of stuff. I'm saving money because, uh, gas and, you know, I'm not buying my coffee in the morning. I'm saving money. Why are you making us do this? Right. So they, they protested so much and the workers just said, okay. And the, the CEO said, okay, it was a smaller business, you know, and they just, just closed down and said, okay, we'll have a meeting once a month in the library or something like that. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so office space. Yeah. Don't yeah. Office space. Don't build a new complex. Just, yeah. you know, just give us a computer and we're fine. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, um, I, I just, I agree with you on your work ethic because I too, I'm ready to retire right now. Truth be told, I'm tired today, but I have to work, you know, so I can care for my mom and, 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 and accomplish some goals. But um, I do not want to drive. I've never wanted to drive to an office five days a week, especially not in DC traffic. Um, I couldn't um, imagine that. I couldn't imagine that. I, I can't imagine either. And that I live here. <laughs> I have, a, I have a friend who was living up here in Connecticut. He just moved down to DC in oh. his, in his, he said his, his commute is 20 minutes, but if a traffic hits, it's like 45. And I said, listen, I would, I would take the back roads every day, every day, yeah. every day, just to, just to avoid it, just to avoid, I couldn't, I cannot do the bumper on a bumper. I would, I would go crazy. Doing it, yeah. No, I actually, part of the reason that I'm in a new house, you'll notice the new background. I actually moved closer to the department of defense. I, I used to live in Maryland quite a long way. If there was rain or snow or a lane closure or an accident or a disabled vehicle or you know a cat, any literally anything <laughs> shut down, multiple highway, the squirrel, what you know, roadkill. So yeah, I actually um, paid double for this house. What my yeah. anyway, but I but now my but it's in, but that's insane, right? It's insane that we're living like that. That the that is that is that is something that people have to think about. I'll pay double. I'll do this. Yeah. I'll do that to live closer to my job when we can just get on a computer and just yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I you know, so I mean, I would love to be hundred percent remote. I've got some you know some restrictions for that, but at least I move closer. I mean, my mortgage is triple what it was, but you know, oh. I leave early enough I can get there in twenty minutes. So. The things we do for the love of our professions. The things we do for love. <laughs> we'll leave it there.
<laughs> thank you so much. Don't hang up. Um, so thank you guys so much for who's ever gonna watch this. Appreciate it. Thank you to the few viewers that we had. Appreciate it, Rich. Uh give us a thumbs up and so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Rich. Appreciate it. Um, and we will see you guys. I'll try to do some a little bit more often. I haven't done in a while. I realize that. Um, but uh messy entanglements is tomorrow night, in case you're not doing anything. So so um, we got a good show for it. For well, we always have a good show. So we see entanglements tomorrow night. So we talk, and we keep it much more lighthearted, more more laughs, more laughs. So, all right, guys, take care. Much love and peace. Thank you.